0: We come now, brethren, to the preaching of God's word, and I invite you to open your Bibles this morning to the book of Romans and the 11th chapter, the book of Romans and the 11th chapter. And I'll be reading and preaching this morning on verses 25 through 32. Romans chapter 11, verses 25 through 32, as we continue in our series of the book of Romans. I invite you to read along silently as I read aloud this morning. Here the Apostle Paul writes, Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for your word today, and we ask now for the work of the Holy Spirit, that he would guide us as we look at this portion of Scripture, an important passage of your word, and we would ask that he would be our teacher, that he would guide us in this truth, and that he would help us to apply the words of this text this morning in such a way to our hearts and lives that we would bring honor and glory to you. For we ask all these things this morning, in Jesus' name, amen. Brethren, we've been considering for a number of weeks now God's purposes for his people, Israel, and especially in light of the fact that Israel has failed to obtain what she was seeking, which was a state of righteousness based on her works rather than upon faith in the gospel. For in her stubbornness and arrogance, Israel refused to believe the glorious gospel in an effort to establish her own righteousness, and in doing so, she demonstrated both the folly and the foolishness of trying to accomplish through her own works that which only Christ can give to His people through the gift of faith in Himself." So Israel's failure to obtain what she was seeking is not only an object lesson in what not to do and how not to approach the pursuit of righteousness, but it is also instructive to us on what we must do in order to be truly righteous. And that is to be found trusting in the righteousness of Christ alone and not in ourselves. And of course, many of the Gentiles who we have been focusing on in recent weeks understood this spiritual principle according to Romans chapter 9 and verse 30. And they were enabled by the grace of God to obtain the righteousness of Christ, which is by faith. And in doing so, the Gentiles became as a wild shoot grafted into God's olive tree and the focal point of God's redemptive purposes in Paul's day, as well as an instrument in God's hands to get Israel's attention and to provoke her to jealousy. And so there has been and there still is a sense "...in which the riches of God have been transferred to the Gentiles through the gospel." Romans 11 and verse 12. "...and Israel has been impoverished and weakened through her disobedience and her unbelief. For in rejecting the gospel of Jesus Christ, Israel has experienced grave consequences." And yet Paul's goal here in this 11th chapter of Romans, especially in our text this morning, is to emphasize that God's redemptive purposes are far grander and far more complex than we first imagined. And that within these purposes are divine mysteries. Divine mysteries in fact, we would expect that some aspects of God's redemptive purposes would be mysterious, wouldn't we? Because God's ways are much higher than than our mere feeble human ways, and God's wisdom is much greater and much more expansive than our wisdom. And here in our text this morning, Romans chapter 11 and verses 25 through 32, Paul identifies a mystery that God does not want us to be unaware of, regarding the nature and the extent of Israel's salvation. In fact, Paul actually begins here in verse 25, you'll notice, by emphasizing our need to understand the mystery of Israel's salvation. The mystery of Israel's salvation, lest we be wise in our own sight For there is a serious danger in knowing too little of divine things, which is why we must be searching the scriptures every day. There's danger in knowing too little of divine things. There's also the possibility of becoming too haughty and too high-minded if we think that we know everything, when in reality we know very little. So Paul starts here by reminding us that in order to be wise on matters relating to Israel and her salvation, we need to understand one mystery in particular which was no doubt hidden or previously misunderstood. And let us notice that this is a a family mystery, if I can call it that, A, a family mystery, or a mystery intended to be known and appreciated among believers, especially among members of God's family. For Paul writes, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery Brothers. Notice that. Brothers. And of course, Paul adds the address brothers here in the middle of verse 25, because this is a mystery that can only be appreciated by brothers and sisters in Christ. Furthermore, it is a mystery that when properly understood also unites brothers in Christ as both Gentiles and believing Israelites comprehend the fullness of its meaning. And then Paul reveals the content of this mystery here in the rest of verse 25. Notice what the content of the mystery is, and that is a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And needless to say, the revealing of this mystery and its meaning helps to explain several things. First, it helps to explain what has come upon Israel in terms of her receptiveness, or better yet, her lack of receptiveness to the preaching of the gospel. Paul makes it very clear here that a partial hardening has been Israel's hindrance. A partial hardening has been Israel's hindrance. And of course, the pressing question here is what or who has been the cause of this hardening? And although Paul does not express it here in verse 25, Paul makes it plain elsewhere, such as in Romans chapter 9 and verse 18, that the one who hardens men in their sin and rebellion is God. And Of course, he does so as a judicial process in which he hands people over to their own stubbornness. And no doubt this is what Paul is referring to here in verse 25 of Romans chapter 11. For in the case of Israel, Paul is revealing here that God gave Israel over to the rebellion and to the stubbornness of her own heart as a means of chastising her as a father does his own children and as a means of withholding his comforts and graces from her. For there was no way that Israel's open rejection of Christ and the gospel could go unnoticed and unpunished. So just as in the days of the Old Testament, when Israel was left to her sins and she had to endure the consequences of her stubbornness and rebellion for an extended season, so has Israel thus far been hardened under the gospel so that God's justice might also be evident. Secondly, digging a little deeper here, this statement from Paul in verse 25 helps to explain why some Israelites were actually receptive to the gospel while others were not. For Paul indicates here in verse 25 that Israel's hardening is not universal, but rather it is only partial. Notice that. Her hardening is not universal, but it's only partial. And, of course, this is confirmed by the fact that there are still a remaining remnant within Israel, as we discussed several weeks ago. Furthermore, we have every right to expect that Israelites who are among the elect remnant will continue to be saved until God's purposes are fulfilled. Then thirdly, this statement from Paul in verse 25 helps to explain why there is hope for a more gospel-centered and glorious future for Israel. There is hope for a more gospel-centered and glorious future for Israel. For Paul indicates here that this partial hardening is only until—notice the language— only until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, or the fullness of the Gentiles has formally arrived. And this language from Paul clearly suggests that this partial hardening is only temporary. It is not permanent. And that after the fullness has come, more will be saved. The question is, How many more? How many more? Well, Paul states here in verses 26 and 27... And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the Redeemer will come from Zion, and he will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. And in examining these two verses, verses 26 and 27, let us notice several things here as well. I want to spend a few moments dissecting this. Notice this in verses 26 and 27. First, notice that the word Israel here is being used to refer to ethnic or national Israel as opposed to the Gentile nations. And this is important to note because some Bible commentators such as John Calvin himself have suggested that Paul is talking about all of the people of God here in this passage who might be called spiritual Israel. And so Calvin is suggesting that Paul is, in a sense, changing directions here and talking about all the people of God as Israel, as opposed to just speaking of national Israel. However, the context surrounding this passage does not seem to warrant that kind of interpretation. The word Israel here has been used throughout Romans 9 through 11 to refer to ethnic national Israel. Ethnic national Israelites will be saved under the sound of the gospel when the fullness of the Gentiles has come. Secondly, let us notice or carefully consider Paul's use of the word all here. In verse 26, notice he says all Israel will be saved for it is unlikely that Paul intended the word all here in verse 26 to mean every Israelite from that time forward without exception will be saved after the fullness of the Gentiles has come. But rather, as is often the case in scripture, the word all here all Israel is most likely used in a more universal or holistic sense. Therefore, Paul would be saying here, once the fullness of the Gentiles has come, Israel as a whole, comprised of both believing minority Israelites and previously hardened majority Israelites, will come to Jesus Christ. In fact, F.F. F. Bruce, a well respected Bible scholar, noted that all Israel, this, these words, all Israel, is a recurring expression throughout Jewish literature. And in most cases, it does not mean that every Jew, without exception, is included here, but that Israel as a whole is in view. So what I'm saying here very simply is Paul's not saying that all in Israel, every single Israelite will be saved, but Israel as a whole, as a whole people called of God will be seen to come to Christ in conversions of great numbers. Then thirdly, let us notice that Paul describes here in verse 26, the one who will save all Israel. He says, the Redeemer who will come from Zion, or more literally, for the sake of Zion, will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And no doubt this is a reference to our Lord Jesus Christ here in this prophecy. Christ who is hailed as Zion's king, Christ "...who took upon himself the sins of his people, that he might deliver them from ungodliness altogether. For through his atoning death, Jesus Christ fulfilled the covenant of redemption for them, and he executed his promise to take away the guilt of their sins." So in terms of the nature and the extent of Israel's salvation here in our text, Paul makes it clear that Christ came for the purpose of redeeming Israel as a whole. Christ did not come for the purpose of redeeming every single national Israelite without exception, but redeeming Israel as his people as a whole, and that his redemptive work was intended to restore Israel through the removal of ungodliness in her, to place her in a position of spiritual wholeness and usefulness in the purposes of God. The question for us this morning is, has this yet happened? Has this yet happened? Has this happened yet in its fullness? By no means. For there remains a greater hope for Israel, There remains a greater hope for Israel, and this hope is not at odds with the redemptive purposes that God has for the Gentiles, because God is joining believing Israelites and believing Gentiles into one spiritual body. And yet we have to understand that as long as Israel is experiencing a partial hardening, as Paul said in verse 25, Israel as a whole will show much greater hostility to the gospel than a much greater receptivity to the gospel at this time. In fact, Paul states here in verse 28 that as regards the gospel now— They, the unbelieving Israelites, are enemies for our sakes. Meaning that in the purposes of God, their role as our enemies, as those who are now opposing our gospel endeavors, is actually serving God's purposes. For when the unbelieving Israelites are openly opposing the gospel, they are actually furthering the reach and the exposure of others to the gospel. In other words, Paul is saying, even as the Israelites oppose the forward movement of the gospel, there are others who are hearing the gospel. There are others who are within the reach of the gospel. There are others who are being exposed to the gospel, who would not have heard the sound of the gospel had Israel not openly rejected it. So Paul wants us to understand here that although although Israel is now a foe rather than a friend to the gospel, their opposition to it is by no means a hindrance to the forward movement of the gospel. Or to put it simply, the gospel of Jesus Christ will go forth. It will keep moving forward. It will accomplish God's redemptive purposes for the gospel, whether Israel is on board with the gospel now or not, because God's redemptive purposes are much greater than Israel. And those who now accept the gospel do so under the power of the Holy Spirit, which is much more powerful in promoting the success of the gospel than Israel is in opposing the gospel. And yet while Israel is an enemy for our sake, notice that, notice what Paul says, Israel is an enemy of the gospel for our sake. Now, we must not forget that regarding the election of God, regarding God's sovereign choice of a godly remnant for himself, Israel has a beloved place in God's redemptive history. Israel has a beloved place in God's redemptive history, and it it should not be forgotten. And of course, in saying this, I am not suggesting that Israel has the preferred place in redemptive history, or that God's dealings with the nation of Israel occupy the most important place in our theology today. As you probably know, there are some churches today that spend almost all their time talking about Israel And would have us to believe that we should be looking at Israel constantly. I'm not suggesting that. What I'm suggesting is that we, we should hold in fond remembrance what God has done among the physical descendants of Abraham. And we should acknowledge, as Paul stresses here in verse 28 of Romans 11, that the Israelites are beloved of God for the sake of their forefathers. For just as families should cherish the memories and the accomplishments of their forefathers throughout the course of their family history, so we should recall with fondness and respect what God accomplished through Israel in terms of imparting the faith to us, in terms of what we've learned from Israel, in terms of what they have left us as a faithful legacy. And of course, this is an important point to emphasize because one might wrongly conclude that because Israel is an outspoken enemy of the gospel now that we have no obligation on our part to value or to respect or to appreciate what God has accomplished in Israel in the past. And yet the truth is we have much to learn from God's dealings with Israel in her better days. And we have so much to gain by taking the time to reflect on why Israel failed and how we can avoid similar failures by remaining steadfast in the faith. Furthermore, we should remember Israel's place in the redemptive purposes of God, and we should hold out greater hope for her, because as Paul says here in verse 29, the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. The gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable, meaning that what God has purposed for Israel shall not be withdrawn. What God has decreed to do for Israel cannot be altered. And of course, this is the main reason why Israel's hardening, which we considered a few moments ago, cannot be permanent. Because God has called Israel to better things than she is presently experiencing. Better things will come to pass. God has given Israel gifts that she did not merit but which he will not revoke from her, because they are evidence of his faithfulness to her, which the Lord will not take from her. Therefore, in light of God's irrevocable gifts and callings upon Israel, there's no way that Israel can be forsaken. Now I might just add, there's no way that you and I can be forsaken. There's no way that any force can hinder Israel's ultimate salvation and restoration to the extent that we've already described and considered here in our text. For what is true of elect Gentiles, that they will be saved in the fullness of God's time, is also true of the remnant. That's been chosen by God out of Israel. They will be saved. They will be saved, not because of anything that they have done or anything that they can do, but because the one who has called them is faithful. First Thessalonians 5 and verse 24. He will surely do it. And of course, we know distinctively that God is faithful, because of our own experience with God's grace, right? Our own experience, for we were at one time in a state of disobedience ourselves, as Paul states in the beginning of verse 30 here in chapter 11, and yet our disobedience did not mark the end of us. Thank God for that. Our disobedience did not mark the end of us, because God called us to himself also. In fact, it was God's full intention from the very start to place us, as it were, in his providence, in a position so that we would become the objects of his divine mercy. God worked every detail out in our lives so that we'd be brought to the place to where we would see the need for mercy and receive mercy. And in making us objects of divine mercy, God actually used the disobedience of others at times to show us and to teach us the need for mercy in our own lives. For as Gentiles, you and I have received opportunities to hear the gospel because of the disobedience of Israel. We have seen mercy expressed to us that we did not deserve because God has determined to preserve his elect through mercy. And so as we look upon the disobedience of Israel today, we should be saddened by it, and we should also be saddened by our own disobedience. And yet we should also understand that God is sovereign even over disobedience. God is sovereign even over disobedience. For our disobedience does not eradicate, does not remove the gifts and callings of God upon our lives which are irrevocable. And may we praise God for this truth And may we also see that it is through mercy that Israel shall one day be restored as well, through mercy. In fact, it will not be through her future obedience that Israel will be saved. It will not be through her future obedience that Israel will be restored in the future, because nothing that we do and nothing that Israel can do makes her deserving of the mercy of God. Mercy is unmerited, but the mercy that we've received, the mercy that Israel may now or at any moment receive, according to verse 31 of this chapter, is mercy that is shown or mercy that is displayed by God alone. It is not mercy that is earned for god is the source of divine mercy and it flows down from him it flows down from him daily it is new every morning james says in james chapter 1 and verse 17 every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the father of lights in whom there is no variation or shadow due to change for the mercy that god places and on display for us through his wise redemptive plan is constant and unchanging just as god is constant and unchanging and so how does paul conclude his teaching on the mystery of israel's salvation he concludes by emphasizing here at the end of this section that in the final analysis, when it's all been said and done, when we look at all aspects of Israel's dilemma, when we look at what she failed to do, what she should have done, what she's being taught, what she failed to learn, when we look at everything in the final analysis, it's really all about, it's always ever been about God's free mercy. That's the bottom line. It's always been about mercy. It's always been about God positioning Israel and positioning us to receive his mercy, his free mercy that flows down from him. It's never been about us. And I know obedience is important, but it's never been about our obedience when it comes to salvation, when it comes to redemption. Paul makes this clear here in verse 32 of Romans 11 that God's redemptive plan has always been to confront us with the reality of our disobedience first. With the reality of our disobedience first. Because only by seeing and accepting the fact that God has consigned all of us to disobedience, as Paul states here in this verse, can we see our need for a mercy that is alien to us. And when I say a mercy that is alien to us, I mean a mercy that is not found in us, a mercy that is not produced by us, but a mercy that comes to us from outside of us, a mercy that comes to us from another source, a mercy that comes to us from God. It is only by seeing God's redemptive purposes through Jesus Christ that we can begin to understand the need for mercy and begin to understand how God can have mercy on all. Notice that at the end of this section here that we're considering this morning at verse 32 that God can have mercy upon all. May God's mercy be manifested in the lives of those who were once disobedient, which includes all of us, but who now know mercy themselves and who now show mercy to others through the mercy that they've received at the hand of Almighty God. May God bless the preaching of his word this morning. Let us pray. Our God and Father, thank you so much for your word and for your mercy to us today. And we would ask that you'd help us to grab hold of this final analysis from Paul today, that God has consigned all of us to disobedience, because that's where this process begins. But he has done so that he might have mercy upon all, upon all who call upon his name, upon all who have been chosen by grace for his family, upon all who hear the gospel and receive it. Father, may we be included in that all. May we know the blessing of received mercy this morning, and may you strengthen us in our resolve to live in light of God's mercy, to be thankful for it, to be grateful for it, to be not only objects of mercy, but vessels of mercy to others as well. We ask, Your Lord, for the work of the Holy Spirit now, even in our lives, to drive this home. We ask all these things in Jesus' blessed name. Amen.